Welcome to History Talk, the history podcast for everyone, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. This is your co-host, Leticia Wiggins. So given the recent startling and important events transpiring in Ukraine, Crimea, and Putin's Russia, all of us here in, at History Talk decided to deliver not just this usual single episode, but in fact a double feature podcast this month. And this is Patrick Patyandi, your other co-host. In part one, you'll find an in-depth discussion with three experts on the historical background undergirding the troubling events in Crimea specifically. One of the panelists is a native of Ukraine itself and produced not only informed analysis, but also impassioned pleas on behalf of the region. Please keep an ear out for part two, focusing on Ukrainian politics in more recent decades, to be released later this month. Uh, Sergei Zhuk, Swiss professor of East European and Russian history from Ball State University, Indiana. I'm Miroslava Mudrak. I'm Professor Emeritus. I was an art history professor here at Ohio State University. Hi, I'm Nick Breifogel. I'm uh, one of the editors of Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, and I'm also a, uh, a Russian historian. Thank you guys all for joining us, and thanks for those introductions especially. So to start us off, Crimea is a place with a long and special history, and we were wondering what are the most important aspects of Crimean history, geography, demography, and, you know, that someone trying to make sense of this of these Crimean events should know. And Miroslava will give you this question first. Well, I'm happy to start out. Crimea, uh, that has had a very long and varied history. Uh, in antiquity, it was colonized by the Greeks and the Romans up to the 4th century AD. And uh, it was strongly associated with powerful nomadic tribes such as the Sumerians and the Scythians. Uh, one should know that since the time of Justinian in the 6th century, uh, Crimea was part of the Byzantine Empire. But in the aftermath of the Mongol invasions and the movement of the Golden Horde in the 12th and then 13th centuries, the Crimea Khanate established the peninsula as their ancestral home. They settled there, and it became the home of the Tatars uh, since. And what's important to remember from the 17th and 18th centuries? Catherine II came upon the scene, and in 1783, she annexed Crimea into the Russian Empire. Uh, and at that time, she forced out some two-thirds of the Tatars and settled uh, the, that area with, with Russians. Um, I would just add what happened with Tatars even under Tsarist uh, rule. Catherine the Great and her chart of annexation of uh, this peninsula actually uh, accepted rights of Crimean Tatars and she promised to keep these rights and uh, even if 200,000 Tatars left Crimea uh, she promised to protect their face, Muslim face and uh, rights of uh, local Tatar population. It's also important to note that that's the time that the Crimean city of Sevastopol also became the home of the Russian Imperial Navy. So there's an intertwining of history here dating back to the 18th century. Uh, eventually, of course, uh, in more recent times, that evolved into the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, and uh, this is a site that we all know is a very important strategic warm water military operation that has served both the empire uh, and the Soviet Union over many uh, global conflicts, including uh, the Crimean War in the middle of the 19th century. But because of Crimean War, and because this war was odd Ottoman Empire, and uh, as uh, Miroslava mentioned, uh, Tatar Hanat, Crimean Hanat, was vassal state of Ottoman Empire. 
Alexander II decided to change policy toward uh, local Tatar population. And many mosques were destroyed. Um, they were transformed or rebuilt into Orthodox churches. And as far as I remember uh, numbers, if in uh, the end of 18th century we had 90% of population in Crimea were Tatars, uh, then afterwards we have uh, German settlers, Mennonites settlers coming there. We have Jews coming there. And it was multinational population by the middle of um, 19th century. I just want to come back to the issue of the Crimean Tatars because I think it's important to emphasize uh, the population that has claimed this area as their homeland. And uh, now we have 60% of population in, by 1854, 60% of population of Tatars. But by 1897, because Alexander II began this anti-Tatar campaign in uh, Crimea, we have only 30% of uh, population of Tatar uh, left. Um, it, this is a population, I think, that really suffers the real tragedy of recent events. In 1944, Stalin deported tens of thousands of Tatars to Uzbekistan and other Central Asian regions of the USSR. He finished the century-old ethnic cleansing of the nation that Catherine had begun. Uh, many, many died and many were killed. Then in 1954, Khrushchev arbitrarily gave Crimea to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. When we're talking about um, the very important dates um, for Crimea, we need to mention uh, 1654, when Russian Tsar promised Ukrainian Cossacks, who asked for help, a lot of rights and uh, promises um, their autonomy, but eventually Russians actually uh, replaced these rights with more uh, different politics, uh, limiting these rights. Uh, many uh, Ukrainian Cossacks became serfs of uh, Russian landlords. In Soviet times, this year, 1654, uh, was presented as the most important uh, year, the most important date of this friendship of two brotherly nations. So that is why when, uh, again, uh, Khrushchev came to power and he wanted a new base, new power base in Ukraine, he began this uh, new Ukrainization campaign, very short-run uh, campaign, and he returned Crimea to Ukraine. Uh, again, he celebrated lavishly this uh, 300th anniversary of um, uh, this event. Uh, during a short period of Soviet history, from 1921 to um, early 30s, we have implementation of very important Kranizatsa uh, program or indigenization program. When Soviet state supported local, especially small uh, national minorities. And uh, in Ukraine, uh, it was called Ukrainization campaign, or Ukrainization campaign, because according to this campaign supported by Lenin, from 1921, all major offices and party in the state should be led by and occupied by people of Ukrainian nationality. The same happened with Crimean Tatars. In 1921, Soviet state created a Crimean autonomous, uh, Crimean Tatar Autonomous Republic. 
It was included in Russian Federation, but Tatars had uh, many rights, uh, speak uh, and uh, teach uh, Tatar language. So, and it existed till 1945, as uh, Miroslava mentioned, when in 1944, um, all Tatars, all Tatars were deported to Uzbekistan and um, other parts of uh, Soviet Central Asia. Um, it was only in the late 18, 1980s when the USSR was on the verge of collapse that those who were expelled, the Tatars who had been expelled, began returning to their homeland. In 1991, the territory became the Autonomous Republic of Crimea within a newly independent Ukraine. And um, in another addition, Soviet intellectual then, uh, independent, uh, in, intellectuals of independent Ukraine didn't uh, feel very bad or uh, uncomfortable with this idea of Ukrainian independence. That's why when we have the rise of Crimean separatism in 1982, when Crimeans wanted uh, their independence from uh, Ukraine, Russians supported this uh, movement. Moreover, in 1992, now we forgot about this. It was Russian Duma which declared the act of 1954 as unconstitutional and invalid. So we forgot that this anti-Crimean, anti-Ukrainian campaign began not under this KGB guy from Kremlin, President Putin, but even under Yeltsin. We've kind of moved into our second question here, which is a great segue. And so a lot of these recent events um, took many of us by surprise, I think. And so specifically, I'm wondering, why was Russia interested in absorbing and annexing or seizing Crimea, depending on on what language you want to choose? And first, Serhii, we'll toss this question to you. Well, because uh, Russia was afraid uh, to lose Crimea because of Euromaidan revolution. For uh, Russian politicians who try to restore this great Russia and limit expansion of NATO and the European Union, pro-European slogans of Kiev revolution, revolution of the Ukrainian youth, were a threat and, uh, to their expansion, especially uh, they still remember what happened with uh, this uh, Black Sea fleet. They were afraid of losing their base in Sevastopol. It's one reason. Another reason, Putin wants to stop the so-called Euromaidan disease spreading to Russia. Because from theoretical point of view, if you analyze the essence of all post-Soviet regimes which still exist in Eurasia, they have the same social, political, and economic structure. They rule by oligarchs who suppress people's opinion, who try to support only their interests. But in Russia, we have rule of so-called KGB oligarchs. And of course, for Russian politicians, for Kremlin, the spread or imitation of Euromaidan um, process of rebellions would be a real threat for their own rule. And he, Putin obviously wants to stop this. Uh, oligarchs in the East, like Akhmetov, and then now it's proven, who sponsored so-called anti-Ukrainian pro-Russian demonstration, paying unemployed people of Donbass for their participation in these demonstrations, which 
look like a real provocation. I, I, I have some of my friends who were in Afghanistan during 1979 and Soviet times, and some of them unfortunately participated in this anti-Afghan operation. Uh, now they retired, the military officer who live in the Ukraine, my former classmates. They told me that if you analyze what happened in Sifiropol in February, it looks like imitation what happened in Kabul in December seven, uh, 1979. The same scenario. People without any ranks, with strange uniforms. So this is KGB operation against independent Ukraine. And that's why we should be careful with supporting and justifying Putin like some, unfortunately, American scholars like Stephen Cohen or politicians like Henry Kissinger. Can I, can I jump in for a yeah. second? Because I was thinking that uh, I think we've laid out an incredible kind of history for uh, – uh, and for the long-term perspective. One of the points that I was thinking about in terms of why this event takes place when it does, I mean, part of it, as you say, uh, Serhii, is, um, uh, is, is the political weakness in Ukraine and instability is, uh, is the longstanding Russian sort of sense of connection to Crimea and the desire to make sure that they control the naval base and this sort of thing. But it strikes me the other, the other factor going on is, is, the, is the Russian-U.S. Uh, relationship, that part of why we see this event happen when it did was that, was that the Russians and, and Putin in particular saw an opportunity to, uh, uh, in some ways, to kind of stick it uh, to the West. Uh, and, and not just that he's worried about losing Ukraine uh, into the European Union, into the kind of clutches of, uh, quote-unquote, clutches of the West, but that there is a longstanding frustration on the part of, uh, of the Russian government towards how the United States and others have uh, have treated them. And this was a chance where they realized that there wasn't much for the United States or the European Union to do. Uh, and so here was a way to uh, to achieve certain ends that they've been after for several years. As you say, this goes back well before Putin, but uh, at the same time, you know, to make the, the U.S. And, uh, and the EU look quite weak. Um, and they seem to have succeeded, at least in the short term, in that regard. But, but may I uh, step in? He needs some kind of drastic interference in international arena to show Russian people that he reflects their interests. Putin actually referred to history to justify this. And as a result, this Crimea is a symbol of Russian glory, of Russian history. We're wondering both how have the events in Crimea changed the future of the Ukraine and then also, what should the United States and the European Union do in response to the events in Crimea? And Nick, we'd like to start this question off with you. Sure. I, uh, it, it seems interesting to me. I mean, I, I think what's happened in Crimea is, 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 is abhorrent. I, I think that the, uh, the process of, uh, uh, of one country uh, you know, uh, violating the sovereignty of another and grabbing territory is, uh, uh, is horrific and is not, it's, it's certainly not the planet that I want to live on. Um, you know, that said, it seems to me that as we move, as Ukraine moves forward, you know, my sense is that I, I, I don't see an opportunity for, uh, I think that it's unlikely that Crimea will return to, to Ukraine. And, and at this point, the, the future of Ukraine is going to be one without this extraordinarily beautiful location with its extraordinary history. Uh, and, and, and as a result, I think that then Ukraine and other parts of the world have to think about, well, what are the, uh, what are the pros and cons? What are the, the gains and losses of this particular moment? Uh, and, 
And I think in some respects, I mean, obviously, there's extraordinary losses. This is, uh, as I said, beautiful part of the world, extraordinary. It's, I mean, it's a beautiful tourist location, great beaches, uh, lovely health resorts, excellent wine. Uh, and all of these kinds of things are going to be lost, uh, you know, to Ukraine in, in some respects at this point. Uh, not to mention all of the military equipment and infrastructure and this sort of thing that's gone. What I wonder, though, is whether there, in fact, there is some kind of a silver lining here for the country in the sense that, I mean, uh, you know, as Miroslav pointed out, the Crimea, you know, Crimea has been, uh, from the moment of independence of Ukraine after the end of the Soviet Union, a, a, a kind of thorn uh, in the country in the sense that it's a site of instability because of the naval, the, the Russian naval base that was there, because of the large ethnic population, because of the fact that everybody knew that large segments of the Russian population, the Russian leadership had their eyes on it. And I wonder to a certain degree whether, in fact, it's perhaps not a bad thing uh, that uh, in terms of the stability of Ukraine going forward to get rid of this destabilizing source, and both in terms of the military uh, uh, presence there, but also in terms of the kind of democracy moving forward in the sense that you know this is a part of the Ukrainian co- uh, country that had voted for presidents like Yanukovych, the recently uh, deposed president with his, his strong Russian ties. Uh, and now those, uh, you know, 2.2 plus million people who attended to vote in that direction are not going to be voting in elections anymore. And that perhaps then, you know, the desire for other parts of Ukraine to, uh, to, to separate from Russia, to push westward and towards the EU now have a greater kind of democratic chance to do that, just in terms of the number of votes, the number of people. And so, you know, as I think, you know, moving forward, I wonder whether, in fact, there are some opportunities here and that ultimately, whether they like it or not, the, the new Ukrainian government and the new president that will be elected in May really need to, to be looking at what are, the, what are the opportunities here and how can we make the best of the situation? And to a certain degree, I think they need to be asking themselves, what can we get from Russia in return for having lost this territory? Um, I would like to say that um, as we all witness this farce, this theater of takeover in Crimea, with its green men and tourists and brotherly invasion, right? (laughs) Um, I hope that this will not overshadow what really was very important, a historic moment, not only for the history of Ukraine, but I think for Europe and and for us too as citizens of, 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 of the universe. That is this, I don't know who coined this term, revolution of dignity, But I really feel that that's really what happened on the Maidan. And I hope that Crimea won't overshadow that because that's really the heart of it all. Um, I think this needs to be emphasized and reiterated uh, repeatedly. I think there can be no turning back to the system that rules people's lives through coercion. Uh, It's been made evident. It's been exposed. Uh, Europe and the United States should not turn their backs on the aggression manifested by Putin. The pressure should be on. Uh, If it isn't on, it would mean, and I think we would have to admit this, that the West has failed in its mission in supporting democratic processes of free governments. So that's very important. But the other important thing is um, we have to learn as much as we possibly can, and we need to weigh the stories. There's a huge propaganda campaign, huge propaganda campaign. Um, I am heartened by the transparency and objectivity of a young generation of journalists who are, um, trans, as they say, translating the events of the day conducting interviews, uh, that's the future of Ukraine. Uh, and they have a Herculean task to overcome the propaganda that has fed so much of 
the minds of the former Soviet citizens who are still living in Ukraine, who still think like Soviets. And so I would like to see that this generation be given a chance to really write its own Ukrainian history and not have some foreign power write this history so that they can, in fact, feel that they have shaped their future. They're not going to leave a brain drain uh, in Ukraine, but they're going to live there and they have something to live for. It's, it's a wish. It's a wish and a hope. Yeah, I, I would add expressing not only my own opinion, but all my friends who are faculty members in many universities and other school of higher education in Ukraine, who are proud to have their students fighting for their dignity, for their rights. Uh, probably Americans forgot a very bad thing about Ukraine, that all Ukrainian administrations, beginning with former Paratchik Kravchuk and including this hero of Orange Revolution, Yushchenko, were thieves who unfortunately robbed Ukraine, all our administrations. And this reached the peak under Yanukovych, this fleecing of Ukraine. And that's why these new young people who represent different generations had no connection to Soviet past, came to the streets asking about their own rights. My friends asked me to give you just two major important requests from my people, people of my Ukraine. The first, because of all presence of Ukraine killed the Ukraine economy, it's on the brink of collapse. It's already collapsed. We need money. We need funding from Europe, from the United States. But with presence of Western representatives, specialists on the ground, who would help us to control distribution of these funds. Otherwise, my friends afraid, again, it will be stolen like it was done in 1990s. The second, we need to have certain kind of military presence of the West, either on Western borders of Ukraine or in Ukraine itself. Why? Because we have precedents. In 1995, Ukraine already was the first country of Commonwealth independent states which signed agreement with NATO. And in 1997, people now forgot about this. Ukraine had military exercises with NATO on Crimean Peninsula. So we have precedents. We have agreements. So if my friends told me, if we have some kind of engagement of young, independent Ukrainian military troops in military exercises with NATO, which actually had been planned before in April, somewhere on western borders, far from Russia, of Ukraine, we will have very good protection from Putin's invasion. One of the things that I was thinking, too, that uh, the um, 
we need, as we're moving forward, if, if, if these great dreams are to come true, uh, and, and I share these great dreams, I mean, I do think that your point about the generational difference is really important and the importance about the young people in particular and, and the opportunities for them and the way in which they look at the world, I think, quite differently uh, from many of the older generation. Uh, I think these are really important. But I was thinking about in terms of the economy, uh, it, it strikes me that one of the big things that the that Ukraine and 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 the West and helping them really need to figure out is what to do about energy. I mean that ultimately there's there's the corruption issue, which is a huge one. But the the fact that Ukraine, I mean, like so many other countries actually uh, to the west of uh, of Russia, it was so heavily dependent on uh, Russian energy sources ensures that Ukrainian sovereignty is always to a certain degree compromised because of that. And and it strikes me, you, you asked about the question of what, what can the U.S. and the EU do going forward? Well, it strikes me that in the long term, what is particularly important is that is that the West more broadly really works with Ukraine to to restructure its uh, its energy supply so that it and many other countries on, its, uh, on the borders of Russia are not as dependent on Russia uh, for energy. And this doesn't necessarily mean you know, uh, fracking, uh, fracking the hell out of our uh, out, out of our land here, but thinking about other types of uh, alternate uh, energy sources, so that it's not just natural gas, so it's not just, uh, and so it's not just reliant on Russia. Because I feel like Ukraine will will always suffer from uh, from a certain type of dependency if it cannot separate itself from uh, from its need for Russian uh, energy sources. To just wrap up with a final word, we'd like to thank Serhi, Miroslava, and Nick for joining us on History Talk. Thank you very much. It's thank been you a pleasure. Much. Thanks so much for having us. This has been part one of April's double feature from History Talk on the events in Ukraine, Russia, and Crimea. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio editors and co-hosts are Patrick Pachiandi and Leticia Wiggins. Find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.